If you want a deeper relationship with God, then learn to trust His promises. The Promise Code by O.S. Hawkins will help you understand how to count on God's promises. And it's yours with a gift of any amount to Turning Point this month. When you give $60 or more, you'll receive the Promise Code set, which includes Esther's CD album, study guide, historical chart, and Bible promises at a glance booklet. Learn more and donate when you go to davidjeremiah.ca. In a world where injustice seems to go largely unpunished, it's easy to give up hope. But Esther offers encouragement to trust God's righteousness. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah underscores this truth as he shares of God's long-awaited judgment being poured out on Haman. From the series, Esther, for such a time as this, here's David to introduce the conclusion of his message, Poetic Justice. We started yesterday and we got to the center of all of this, but today we pick up the final details. Here is this evil man, Haman, planning to hang Mordecai, and he himself is hung on the gallows that he built for his enemy. What happens next? Well, that will be in what we talk about today in just a few moments, so stay tuned. Before we get into our teaching session, just a reminder again of some very important things. We're going to Alaska in July. I started to tell you about it yesterday and ran out of time. Let me just pick up where I left off and let you know that on the 15th through the 22nd, we're headed to Alaska. Uh, Our Alaska cruise, which we take almost every year, uh, this year will be very special, kind of a little extra push for sports. James Brown and Tony Dungy from CBS Sports will be our special guests. And we'll talk to them one night. Uh, My son, Daniel who is an analyst for the NFL Network. He will be with us, and he will interview these two guys, and we'll have a great time talking about the NFL and being reminded that there is a group of guys who love Jesus and aren't ashamed to proclaim him, and in a right way, not always wearing it on their sleeve, they hold up the name of our Savior. We'll talk more about that when we are together in Alaska. And then, uh, before that, we're going to be in Boise, Idaho, The 20th of April, it's our only uh, rally in the spring. We have a lot of other things going on. And um, we'll be at the Extra Mile Arena. Tickets available uh, at davidjeremiah.org. You need a ticket, but the tickets are free. One last thing before we get into our lesson today. People are asking me all the time, are we going back to Israel? And yes, we are. We're going back to Israel in March of 2024. We have just cleared the dates. We just have the information. We'll be giving you more details in the near future. But if you're planning to go to Israel, save those dates. Uh, We'll get them to you March 2024. Uh, I wish I could give you the exact dates. I don't have them yet, but I know that's in the first half of March, and we'll get back to you as soon as we know more and hope that you can go with us. It's the top of the bucket list for so many people you know. Maybe you're one of them, and we'll get you the information as soon as we get it ourselves. All right, let's finish up with Poetic Justice. This is Poetic Justice Part 2. very interesting thing happens in verse 7, we're told, that the king at this very shocking moment, arises from the banquet table. And according to the text, the king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Sometimes the Bible has a way of 
very, very wonderfully understating a crisis. He saw that there was evil determined against him. That's a wonderful way to say that he was in big trouble and he knew it. I don't have any trouble understanding why the king got up and walked out into the garden. Any of you who have ever lived in stressful situations know that there are some times when you're better off not to say what's on your mind, but you just need to walk out in the cool of the night air and get your thoughts together. What a stressful moment this was for the king. He could have said the wrong thing. He might have just said, kill him right now, take his life. But in order to control himself, remember now, the king had endeared himself to Haman and Haman to the king. They become trusted friends. And the king was really torn as to what he would do. Here was his wife who is telling him that his best friend is responsible for a plot not only to kill all the Jewish people, to ultimately take her life. He has not known this before. At least it hasn't registered with him. And so in that moment of shocking truth, he gets up from the banquet table and he walks out into the garden to collect his thoughts. I don't know what his motive was, but while he was in the garden, Haman realized he had one last shot at perhaps saving his own neck. I need to explain that the custom of the day was that when you banqueted, you didn't sit up in high back chairs like we do, but in the Persian culture, they reclined as they banqueted. In fact, one of the writers I read this week said that at banquets, they had very little solid food. Mostly they drank wine and ate dessert. And they would recline on their couches and they would linger long at the wine after the meal and they would talk and fellowship with one another. And so when the king left to go out into the air, his queen Esther was reclining on her couch. And as soon as the king was out of sight, Haman realized that if he had any chance at all to be saved, he needed to petition the queen. Little did he know that even that was to be his undoing. Read what it says happened. And when he went over to where the queen was, he was begging her. And when the king comes back in, verse 8, Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed wherein Esther was. Now, that doesn't mean that he had tried to seduce her. Surely he was smarter than to do that. But what it does mean is that he had come to the foot of the couch where she was reclined and began in an oriental custom to embrace her feet and to entreat her to stand in his place and to save his life. And apparently in his intensity to try to entreat this woman to save his life, he was in a situation where when the king walked back in, he saw this man who had threatened the life of his own wife and the lives of all the Jewish people. He saw this man entreating the queen on her couch. And there is a great deal of divergence of opinion as to whether the king really thought he was up to no good or he used this as an opportunity to nail Haman to the wall for his indiscretion. But notice what happened. The king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed where Esther was. Then said the king, will he force, will he rape the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, They covered Haman's face. You say, what's that all about? That means the last plea has been uttered. When they put the sack over your head, you're dead. (laughs) That's what that means. He was about to lose his life. And the king, we are told, realized that he had caught Haman in a violation of palace etiquette which was the minor crime compared to what he had done. 
And the covering of Haman's face was the sign that he was doomed to die, even though the king had not even pronounced death upon him. When they put the bag over his head, that meant to everyone there was no chance for Haman to be saved. So that is the delay that sealed the sentence. Now I'm going through the story because there's only 10 verses and it's a very rapid fire sequence of events. The dinner that saved the Jews, verses 1 and 2. The disclosure that shocked the king, verses 3 and 4. The discovery that sentenced the enemy, verses 5 and 6. The delay that sealed the sentence, verses 7 and 8. And now finally, the decree that settled the issue, verses 9 and 10. Read what it says. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. We have not seen the name of this man much in this record, just once that I recall back in the first chapter. His name is Harbona. He is a chamberlain of the king. He is one of those who had been sent to fetch Vashti when she refused to come into the king's party. He had also been a part of the chamberlains who had gone to bring Haman to the banquet. Maybe as he was bringing Haman to the banquet, he saw the gallows that had been constructed there in Haman's property. And at this moment, when he had the opportunity, he reminded the king that this one who had so violated everything the king stood for could be cared for on the gallows he had prepared to hang Mordecai on. Hence the title, Poetic Justice. On the gallows that Mordecai was to hang, prepared by Haman, Haman was to hang because of the faithfulness of God who saw that justice would be done. Some have said that Esther was not very merciful in this moment. Some have actually written that she was not righteous because she could have spared Haman's life and she did not. Whoever those people are who said that are probably the ancestors of some of the people who make decisions in our country on occasion. <laughs> I remember reading something that a scholar by the name of Moore wrote. He said, Haman was not defeated. He was a falling but not fallen enemy. He had lost a crucial battle, but he had not necessarily lost the war. Were Haman to survive this round, he might recover and score a knockout in the next one. So long as an enemy as powerful and shrewd as Haman lived, he was a threat to Esther, to Mordecai, and to the entire Jewish community. To say here that Esther was merciless and unfeeling is to misrepresent the entire situation. Thus, while her heart might have prompted her to be merciful, logic and prudence restrained her, and she let the man die. Does that make you think of anything? I better get off this subject quick before I get political. As long as there is a Haman, there is trouble for the Jews. And uh, Esther, a woman, had the intestinal fortitude to carry the thing through and see it done. Poetic justice. Isn't it interesting how often that comes up in the scripture? It is a revelation of a great truth that is put to us in the New Testament like this. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap.
J. Vernon McGee in one of his little booklets says, here is a man who went to a banquet and found out it was a necktie party. (laughs) 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 Psalm 37, 35, and 36 says, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a giant green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Psalm 37, 35, and 36. David, the great psalmist of Israel, had doubtless seen many situations like this in his life, and he wrote in Psalm 9, verses 15 and 16, listen to this. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. That's like God, isn't it? He smiles down upon the incantations of the wicked and lets them be caught in their own traps on their way to judgment. Listen to Psalm 7, verses 14. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it, and he has fallen into the ditch which he made. (laughs) It's exactly what happened to Haman. He dug his own grave and fell into it. You know, the Bible has many stories like that. You remember the story of Jacob in the Old Testament? Jacob, who deceived his father. I was thinking about this this week. He was very clever, Jacob was. In fact, his name means the trickster. He was always tricking somebody. And uh, Jacob put on his brother's clothes. Old Isaac smelled them. Isaac was blind. And he said, this guy smells like Esau. Jacob tricked his father and tricked his brother. And you know what? It wasn't... But a few years later, when Jacob was an old man, one day when he had all 12 of his sons, they brought to him the coat of many colors, which they had dipped in the blood of a goat. And they said, is this your son's coat? And Jacob broke down and wept. He thought his son was dead. He had been deceived by his sons. Isn't that interesting? Often what we set out to do to others In the providence of God, he reaps it back on ourselves. I remember another story in the Bible that illustrates that. You remember Daniel and the story of how he was saved by God from the lions and then his accusers who put him in there were cast into the lion's den. Now, never read that story, but I don't think about the awesomeness of that event. Daniel spent all night in the lion's den using one of the lion cubs as a pillow, and they never touched him. But there was a whole horde of people who were responsible for putting him there, and if you go back and read the story, you'll discover that when they threw those people into the lion's den, they chewed them up and tore them apart before their bodies hit the floor. And that which they attempted to do to God's people was turned back on their own head. Here is a proverb that sounds familiar. Proverb 26, 27, Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein, and he that rolleth a stone, it will return upon him. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Poetic justice. Haman hanged upon his own gallows. 
Strike one up for God. Amen. Amen. You know, there's some things we can learn from the story. Let me just give you three things real quickly. Just three little applications you want to write down in your notebook. Have you got the outline straight? There are five sections to these ten verses, and just a little flow of it will help you to remember the chapter. But let's think of the three things that we can learn from this chapter in Esther. Number one, the delay of justice is not the denial of justice. Don't forget that. Why does God wait so long to execute his justice? Why did he wait so long to take care of Haman? Could he not have cared for him at the beginning? Yes, but perhaps he waited, as he often does on us, to give him an opportunity to repent. And he did not. Never forget it, men and women, even though you can't always see it. God is working behind the scenes. His justice is not lost. God is watching over his own. What is it the scripture says? No weapon formed against Israel will prosper. God will always bless those who bless the Jews and curse those who curse the Jews because that is his promise. And even when you cannot see it on the surface, you can rest assured that what you cannot see on the surface is going on down underneath the surface. And ultimately, it will come to the top, perhaps in poetic justice, as it did here. Some of you are like the people in the New Testament who cried out as the martyrs. And you want to know how long, God, before you're going to avenge us. And God says, in my time, justice will be meted out. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. He'll do his work just because you can't see it. And, and some of you need to be judged because of your evil. And you may think you've gotten away with it. You may think you have been able to somehow sidestep the judgment of God and avoid the justice which is due you. Let me remind you of the poem that goes like this. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. With patience he stands waiting, but with exactness grinds he all. So you're not going to escape. You say, Pastor, I don't like that. That sounds like you're trying to scare me. No, I'm trying not to scare you. I'm just telling you the truth. That God's justice, though delayed, is not denied. Secondly, the deliverance of one may often be the doom of another. Seldom does human life present itself before our eyes, the picture that we have here in this text. Haman, who is the favorite prime minister of state, the all-powerful, kingly person, the wealthy, the strong, the noble, is hanged on the gallows. Mordecai, the despised Jew, whose life is seriously in jeopardy and likely to end most promptly, is promoted to the highest favor and the greatest influence with the king. The deliverance of one is often the doom of another. But let me tell you, it goes even beyond that. If you have your Bibles in the seventh chapter, just hold your place there and go back with me to the third chapter. Let me remind you of something. The third chapter and the first verse gives us a little biographical information about Haman. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Remember that? You remember King Agag? who was the king over the Amalekites? Well, let me remind you of something that happened in this night when Haman was hanged and Mordecai was promoted. Haman was an Amalekite, and we are told that the Amalekites, because of their hostility against the Israelites, were singled out for God's judgment. Was it given to them immediately? No, but it was just as sure. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek under heaven. The threat was not carried out at once because, as we've learned, God's justice delayed is not God's justice denied. But it is interesting to note that Haman, the Agagite, is the last Amalekite mentioned in the Old Testament, and when he is hung on his own gallows, you never hear of the Amalekites again. God's nation, the Jewish people, are promoted and preserved, and the Amalekites who try to destroy them are once and for all put out of sight and off the record. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the deliverance of one may be the doom of another? And finally, let me remind all of us that the dedication of one can often make the difference for many. Dr. W.A. Criswell, when he would give an invitation in his church, he would always invite them to come and he would say, just come. A family you, a couple you, just one somebody you. Hard to believe that one somebody can make a difference in the course of human events. My friends, if you subtract Esther from the Old Testament, there is no Jewish nation, there is no Jesus Christ, there is no Bible, there is no future for mankind because Esther was the link that preserved the Jewish nation. She was just one somebody who consecrated her life to God and did what God asked her to do. She made her commitment in a moment of emotional fury. She said, if I perish, I perish. Oh, that's great. She responded to the invitation. But will she carry it through? When she is under fire, she stands before the king and points her finger at the enemy. And in that moment, that one somebody became the biggest one somebody in the history of Israel to this moment in time. And I'm reminded that how often it is that I feel this way, and I'm sure you feel this way. What can one person do? I'm just one little voice in a little pulpit in East County, San Diego. What can one somebody do? But you never know what God can do with just one somebody. One somebody who's consecrated their life to the Lord. You say, Pastor Jeremiah, I've given my life to God for missions. And sometimes I wonder, what difference is that going to mean in the billions of people who need to hear the gospel? Don't you ever think that way? God used Esther to turn the events of the world around. He may choose to use you in a significant way like that as well. The dedication of one can often make the difference for many. I cannot help but make the analogy that there was on another occasion a man who came to dinner... He went to the Last Supper, the last Passover. He sat down and he ate. And before 24 hours were gone, he was dead, hung on the gallows. The Bible says, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And our Lord was cursed. You say, like Haman? Oh, worse than Haman, because he not only carried a sin of one person, but he carried upon him the sin of the whole world. And he went out from that dinner and hung on that tree because you and I are as guilty as Haman and he paid the penalty for us that we might go free. He went to dinner and they hanged him on a tree. It happened to Haman, but thank God it happened to Jesus too. And because he hung on that tree, you and I are free. We have the joy of the Lord in our hearts and we can go about our lives without the fear of penalty and judgment. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, the difference is Haman did evil, 
and deserve to die. The Lord Jesus never did a wrong thing. He was the perfect, sinless Son of God, but He was there because of us, because of all the evil we have done, because of our sin. He took our place that we might be a part of His family. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, let me just encourage you today to take a moment right now and invite Jesus Christ into your life. Ask Him to come and forgive you for your sin and uh, to take up residence in your heart. Just pray a simple prayer. Say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I have failed you many times, and I'm sorry, and I don't want to be like this the rest of my life. I want you to come and cleanse me. Give me your son, Jesus Christ, as my Savior. I believe he is the Son of God and died for the sins of the world, including mine. And Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior today. I repent of my sin, and I will seek to live for you from this day forward. Pray that prayer. When you pray that prayer, find somebody that you know is a follower of Christ and tell them what you did. Let us know that you've prayed to receive Christ, and we'll send you a couple of books that we prepared for events just like this for people who receive Christ. We send these books to thousands of people every year, and we have a couple for you. Let us know that you prayed with me, and we'll send the books to you today. And then don't forget to be with us tomorrow. Tomorrow we're doing a message called Undoing the Undoable. Join us then. I'm David Jeremiah. Thanks for listening. Today's message came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church, where Dr. David Jeremiah serves as senior pastor. To give us an update on how God is using this ministry, write to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of the latest book from O.S. Hawkins, The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James Versions, available in a variety of attractive cover options. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue Esther for such a time as this on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? The Jeremiah Legacy Society from Turning Point was created for friends of the ministry who feel called to partner with Dr. David Jeremiah to deliver the unchanging Word of God to future generations. We can ensure that the impact we have reaches beyond our days here on earth. Visit our website at davidjeremiahgift.org to learn more about how you can be a part of the Jeremiah Legacy Society. If you enjoy listening to Turning Point with David Jeremiah, you'll be happy to hear that there is now a daily Turning Point television broadcast that you can watch each weekday. Tune in to Faith TV, Joy TV, or Miracle Channel Monday through Friday to watch the Turning Point daily television broadcast. Be sure to check your local listings for the channel and time in your area. Or visit davidjeremiah.ca forward slash TV to download a program schedule or watch at your convenience. That website again is davidjeremiah.ca forward slash TV. Even though Karl Marx, the father of modern communism, was an atheist, he certainly understood the meaning of words. He wrote, either God is sovereign or man is sovereign. One of the two must be untrue. He reminds us that when we use words like Lord and sovereign, we should live as if we understand them. Jesus asked a crowd one day, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? 
Calling someone Lord is the same as calling him sovereign. And if Jesus is sovereign Lord, it means we are not. Therefore, our role is to live submissively to him. And this is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's sovereignty on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.